Well, good morning, everybody. For those who don't know me, my name's Cameron. There's a few people out there I don't recognise. Great to have you with us. Now, what are you hoping for? Maybe you're looking at your watch and you're thinking about what else is coming on this Sunday and you hope this guy sits down pretty soon. What are you hoping for? We are intrinsically creatures of hope, aren't we? We have things, even just on the mundane level, maybe we got up this morning and we thought, I hope it's a nice sunny day. Or I hope I might be able to go do this tomorrow. Or I hope, what is it that you hope for? We are essentially people of hope. To live without hope, could we really call that live? Is that what life is? To know that there is nothing that you are looking forward to. What a tragic situation that would be. Alexander Pope said, quite famously, you've probably heard this one, hope springs eternal in the human breast. We are intrinsically and essentially hopeful people. Our leaders understand this and they peddle this to us, don't they? If we were American, we would have been bombarded in the last two uh, presidential elections. Barack Obama just put the word hope up there. And Trump peddled a vision of the future of America, make America great again. And in case we're feeling a bit left out, we have our Australian version. And Corey Bernardi has picked that up. Make Australia great again. He's probably hoping that Donald Trump is not going to sue him for breach of copyright. But anyway, our leaders understand this and the good ones anyway. They give us a vision that we can hope for and then they try and convince us that they can deliver. Can they? Well, books are now being written about Obama's time as President of the United States, the eight years of his regime. Did he deliver what he promised? There's big debates. You've probably got opinions about Mr Trump and whether he can and will deliver on his promise to make America great again. And I suppose Corey's going to ask us at one point to vote for him and we will cast a decision on whether we think he can deliver as well. But when I think about the hopes that I have, the hopes that I've had, maybe think about some of the things that you have hoped for. Have they come to pass? Have they delivered? I think more often than not, the things that I'd hoped for Maybe they haven't come about in quite the way, or maybe not at all. Can we look to this life and think of hope as something that we can have confidence in? Or has hope just become wishful thinking? I hope this might happen, even though I expect that it won't. Can we have a foundation for hope and then for life that is way more substantial than the promises of our political leaders. I want to explore that with us this morning under three topics, three headings. Hope shattered, hope restored, and living a hopeful life. Now, we're familiar with the story. Hannah's read for us, but just before this, I want to pick up the end of chapter 23. Let me read to you from verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. 
He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut from the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is a story that has ended at a grave. It had ended at a tomb. Jesus had died late in the afternoon on the Friday of Passover. The Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, starts at sunset and there was no time for them to do the niceties of the funeral. And so Jesus is laid in a tomb where no one else had been laid and left until the day after the Sabbath. And here we have the women coming back. The first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now we have an issue. We know the end of this story, don't we? And so it is easy to underestimate what these women are experiencing. But think about it. Have you been to a funeral for a loved one? You know the heaviness of heart. As you go to pay your last respects, one commentator spoke of the ashes and the sackcloth covering their soul, their depression, exhaustion, grief and despair. These women go to find a corpse, the corpse of a friend, the corpse of a teacher, the corpse of a man they honoured. These women go looking for dead Jesus. But where are the others? Where are the men at this point? Nowhere to be seen. Now the Apostle John in his Gospel, he records for us that the men were terrified that the Jewish authorities would mop up the rest of the Jesus movement. That they would come about uh, and pick them up and do away with them as well. That they are in hiding because they were afraid the authorities would finish the job. And so after the women encounter the angels and hear their message, when they go back, they find these men closeted away. And we read this. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, Judas is gone, and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told, them, told this to the apostles. What are you expecting at that point? Again, we're too familiar with this situation. What are you thinking that they will do? Part of me thinks, oh, okay, great, Jesus is alive, obviously. No. They did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now the word here, nonsense, literally is a medical term and it's the raving of someone in delirium. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, my family is a family where people speak in their sleep. Do you have this? Okay, I'm going to pick on my wife at the moment here. Uh, because Karen will often 
talk to me while she's sound asleep. Uh, I, quite mischievously, when I wake up enough to realise this, I try and lead her in certain directions with the conversations. <laughs> but so often, 99 times out of 100, not that there have probably been 100 of this, what I ask her and what she tells me have absolutely no relevance to each other. Absolutely no relevance to each other. And that is what has happened here. These women have come in with this news and it just does not compute. It seems like the ravings of someone who is in a delirious state. It just doesn't compute. The men could not comprehend that there could be hope in this hopeless situation. Even more so, after they've gone and checked it out, we read, as Simon read for us as we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we read a little bit later on of two of the disciples walking out to one of the local villages, Emmaus. From verse 22, we read these words. They're talking to Jesus. They don't actually realise they're talking to Jesus at this point, uh, and they're relating what's actually happened. In addition, some of our women amazed us, they said. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Where are these men? They're leaving Jerusalem. Possibly going back to their lives, going back to where they came from, going back home. They heard this story, but they are still sceptical. Why? Because dead men don't rise. These guys with Jesus had dreamed big dreams. And now those dreams are over. They had hoped. In verse 21 we read these words, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was going to bring Israel out of slavery. An image of salvation, an image of deliverance. And Jesus had promised this. Verse 19 He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Jesus had embodied and spoken of the kingdom of heaven, He had displayed the power of God. He had promised through his words and actions an end to suffering and to evil and oppression. A time where everything would be set right, where God's people would be vindicated. And it's over. It's over, they think. Such promise shattered. There is no room for hope in the disciples' hearts. But what about your hearts? Are we a society, do you think, that actually deals well with hope? An author was asked in the New York Times magazine, uh, what subjects are underrepresented in contemporary fiction? It's a question that I lie awake thinking about. But no, she was asked, what, what is it that people aren't writing about? What stories aren't being told? Her answer, she said, writers are a bit flummoxed by joy. With few exceptions, we seem to have decided that despair, alienation and bleakness 
are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. We are suspicious of joy and the fullness of life. What she's saying is that as a society, hope is not front and centre. Maybe that's a little bit academic for you. Maybe you prefer despair.com like I often do. Despair, it's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. Okay, you get that. Okay, I stuck a similar picture above one of my colleagues' desks the other day uh, that says, uh, why do people say it's always hard to predict the future? My worst dreams always seem to come true. Uh, We resonate with things like this, don't we? Think about the stories that are being told at the moment. So many of the stories are about dystopian futures, so my teenagers tell me. Uh, It's all the negatives, it's all the bleak despair of what humankind has gone to. If you've seen this one, do you remember the tagline? Rebellions are built on hope. But I'd like to suggest that as a culture, as a community, we perhaps think the empire has got this one pretty much wrapped up. Because back a hundred years or so, people looked forward with enthusiasm and excitement. There were going to be great advances of science and economics and education, and we were going to live in a utopia. We were going to live in this perfect paradise. One economist described the fact that by the mid-1980s, I think he pitched this out, that we were going to live, work maybe a few hours a week, kick back and enjoy the blessings of this economic paradise that we've created. Now, is that your experience? It's not mine. It's not mine. The promises that have been so, we are now on the far side of them. We realise that science creates as many problems as it solves. And then it chases around trying to solve the problems that it's just caused and then creates more and more and more. The problems seem to keep on going. We're no longer believing the story. We don't think that education is going to solve all our problems the way they did just a few generations ago. We don't dream of utopias. If we have hope, it's small hope. It's cheap hope. It's the small pleasures that are there and mainly they're probably for other people. For those with more money than we have who are maybe better looking than we are, or younger and fitter and stronger and healthier, or better educated than we are. We dream little dreams that are uncertain at best. And at the end of it all, death. Like the Jesus hope, death ends all our hopes. Carl Jung, the psychologist, said this, death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more so psychically. A human being is torn away from us, and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. Death ends hope. So what's the answer? Live for today? 
This broken world is the best you're going to have. This wealth is your only wealth. This health is your only health. This joy and pleasure is all you've got. So seize the day. Or to be biblical, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Is that the only hope we can have? I would like to suggest, no, it's not. There can be a sure foundation and the resurrection of Jesus is that foundation. Let me read to you from verse 2. The women have gone to the tomb carrying their spices. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Jesus in this case blesses his disciples and blesses us not with his presence but with his absence. Did you hear the gentle rebuke? The angels say, why do you look for the living among the dead? You should have known it was coming. You should have seen this. It should have been obvious to you. The angels rebuke them for their lack of faith. The angels point not to all the evidences that we could muster for the resurrection. They don't say, look, of all the different possibilities, this is the one that makes sense, like others have done. The angels point to the promise of the Lord Jesus. What does he say? Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day be raised again. The Son of Man must be delivered. That little word must is so important. Why is Jesus not here? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus be handed, why was he handed over to be crucified? Because he must. This little word points to the plan of God. Why? Because death did end all hope. And for hope to reign, for life to come, death had to be defeated. The scriptures teach us that sin is the sting of death. If death is going to be defeated, sin needs to be disarmed. What is sin? Simple way of understanding sin is seeing that sin is us in God's place. We are putting ourselves in the place where only God has the right to be. Sin is us substituting us for God. And death is the consequence. God does not tolerate that. God will not allow us to deny him. The wages of sin is death. 
And so if death is going to be defanged, if its venom is going to be drawn, sin has to be judged. And that is a price that we ourselves could never pay. That is not something that we could ever do. But if sin is us in God's place, the salvation that came through the cross is God in our place. He comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the cross, he pays the price that we could never pay. He stood in our place, crowned not with gold but with thorns. Acclaimed not with adulation but with mockery. Despairing of life so that our hope might be restored. Dying and rising, paying the price for our sin, he disarms death, breaks its power and restores hope. Makes it possible for us to live a life with hope. Because what Jesus offers is not merely forgiveness and heaven in the future. That is true, that is there, that is awaiting everyone whose faith is in Christ. That they will be with him in a remade heaven and earth. Jesus' own resurrection is a first fruit, the promise of so much more to come. That is there, but there is so much more. The disciples saw this promise. They saw the kingdom, but they didn't see the road that was going to be walked to get there. They didn't see that the king would conquer, not through strength, but through weakness. Not with an army, but with a cross. But they did see that it was coming. But it's not just out there. It's the here and the now. The hope that is guaranteed to all whose faith is in Christ, that rests upon the finished work of what he completed on the cross. Death disarmed because sin has been paid for. That hope comes back and transforms life now. Why? Because this is not the only life that you are going to live. This is not the only wealth that you're going to enjoy. This is not the only health that you will ever have, the only pleasure and joy. If that was the case, live for today makes perfect sense. But God guarantees us in Christ a future that is perfect, that is so much more than what we enjoy now. And as we serve him now, we see that come through us in the lives of others. We can live lives that transcend the cheap hope of our world. Lives that bless others rather than seek blessing ourselves. Lives that transcend, lives that live for something and someone greater. We can live, as Jesus said, life to the full. Now my mother sometimes could be fairly harsh. She wasn't particularly fond of people she felt were overly pious. And she used to have this lovely phrase, maybe you've heard it, uh, of so, so heavenly minded as to be of no 
earthly use. You've heard this? Yeah? C.S. Lewis would disagree with my mother. Uh, I think he trumps it, actually, to tell you the truth. He says this. He says, if you read history, you'll actually find the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world, they have become so ineffective in this. Lewis would say, not heavenly minded enough to be of earthly use. Christian, if you see that your hope is sure, if you see that what God has promised is true, you will live the kingdom life now. And under God and by his power, you may do extraordinary things. Not for you, but for him. You are freed not to seek everything now, but because everything has been given to you then and now. We are heirs with Christ. You don't need to strive for it now. He has given it to you fully. Brothers and sisters, Hear Lewis's rebuke. Since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, of the hope that is theirs, they have become so ineffective in this one. Jesus' death and resurrection opens eternity to us. But not only that, it transforms the here and the now, giving us the power and the motivation to live a hope-filled life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that today, particularly, we can celebrate the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you, though, we brought nothing other than our need our sin, our guilt, our brokenness and shame. Although we have nothing to offer you, you gave us Christ and he bore all those things in our place, dying under your judgment and rising again to new life, victorious over sin and death, opening eternity to us, Father, open our eyes to see the hope that is ours in Christ. Help us to see the false hopes that this world offers. Help us to find true hope and live hope-filled lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.